housing is healthcare. Housing is uh, wellness. Housing is economic development. Housing is one of the most important ways for us to assure and secure our ability to offer um, a means of stability, a means of success for people across the state. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. I'm your host, Ben Hoekstra. I'm thrilled to feature today's guest, Elmer Moore, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, or WIDA. Today's conversation is a little longer than most, but I'm confident that you'll find Elmer's story and what he shares about the importance of housing as valuable as I did. Without further delay, Elmer Moore. I'm here with Elmer Moore, who, among many other things, is the executive director of WIDA. Um, and Elmer and I have known each other for a, a few years, and it's great to get a chance to have you on and talk with you a bit. To start us off, Elmer, Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I know you're not originally from Milwaukee. Uh, you're you're a, a transplant, a, a happy transplant, I think, from our conversations. But tell us a bit about you and uh, how you ended up in Milwaukee. Thank you so much, Ben. It's it's exciting to get a chance to have this conversation with you. I am coming up on my 10th anniversary of becoming a Milwaukee and Wisconsin resident. I came in 2013 to work for a manufacturer of shoes and apparel called Allen Edmonds, which is uh, le leaning into its 100th year of uh, making great products in Wisconsin. Um, I'll be honest with you, when I arrived, I thought it was for potentially a two-year engagement. I had some big ideas about the work I was going to do at the company and where it would take me other places around the world, um, and here I am 10 years later, having lived a much more interesting and exciting life than I ever could have predicted. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny how sometimes we find ourselves places longer than we expected and engaging in new ways. Now, where did you come from originally, Elmer? That's a reasonable question. So I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my mother, Audrey, um, was the executive director of a youth services agency. And all of her working life, she, she spent trying to figure out ways to protect and support young people who desperately needed it. Uh, the result of my mother working in youth services was that she typically knew more slang than me. And she was way more current on things that a parent should be worried about than I was. She often knew places that I shouldn't go before I did. My father, Elmer Moore Sr., was a Baltimore City police officer uh, for 29 years. And he actually retired when I was, I think I was seven years old. And he was a stay-at-home dad for a couple of years before he actually returned to work uh, to become a security guard at a federal courthouse. 
And Elmer Sr. was the kind of guy that people knew, loved, remembered. Uh, they watched out for him. They, they respected him. Um, I've got a, a, long, a long list of, of stories about um, who my father was in the community where he lived. And, and that's in part so meaningful because my father passed away when I was 12 years old. And some of the stories I learned even after his passing. And so I'll share one of them with you now just to set the tone for um, the kind of home I grew up in and the, the, the persona and the personalities that uh, made me the person I am. So I was early, mid-20s, and I was working college admissions, and I was traveling around the country visiting high schools and visiting families who I was trying to recruit to come to the college I worked for. And one of the benefits was I actually visited Maryland as part of my territory, and I would fly home and almost experience my hometown as a, as a visitor. But this one occasion, I was uh, renting a car, and I hand over my credit card to the woman behind the desk, and she looks at my name, and she says, oh, that's, that's interesting. I once knew a man named Elmer Moore, and Elmer obviously is not a particularly common name, uh, at least for someone under, you know, 95. <laughs> and so I, I replied to her, "Oh, you know, was was he a police officer?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, that that's my father. I'm I'm Elmer Jr." And this is a solid, you know, decade and a half after my father had passed away, and. Standing behind this counter, this woman told me stories about my father for the next 45 minutes. Uh, and it was amazing to me because she didn't know me. She knew my father. She had met some folks from my family. But most importantly, what she wanted to tell me was that he was respected because he gave respect, that he was the kind of police officer that folks wanted to take care of. She told me stories of, of my father walking the beat, you know, walking down the street in his uniform. And the, the, the robbers would stop what they were doing when they saw my father, not because he was a police officer, but because they respected him individually and personally. Yeah. And um, that was amazing. Um, it was all I could do in that moment not to... Uh, cry while standing in this very public setting as this woman is helping me get to know a person who I had only known as a child long after his passing, um, once I had already started my professional journey in mission-based work. So that's Elmer Sr. Um, I was lucky enough a few years later to acquire a, what I think it's called a bonus dad, you know, a bonus father in the form of a a guy named Alan Bennett, who married my mother when I was in my early 20s, who is the uh, CEO of a federally qualified community health center. Awesome. And again, a person who is well-known, well-loved and respected, and who has committed his life to service and committing his life to making sure he can support and nourish his community. So all that to say, grew up in Baltimore. I went to college in Pennsylvania where I studied art and dance. Um, there's going to be a trivia question that some folks will win money on if they can remember that. Moved to New York City, 
became uh, all the things that a 22-year-old should be in New York City, an auditioning dancer uh, who went to a lot of cool art events and who worked down in Soho and Tribeca. Um, left New York, moved to Maine, where I did some cool things, including farming, and uh, started working in college admissions. Uh, and it's there that I came to understand how individuals can work efficiently and uh, effectively at scale to in impact a number of lives. And it might be in a small way, but we can contribute to someone's trajectory in a, in a very meaningful way, just by being available, providing resources, uh, listening well, and being thoughtful. Um, so I did that for years. I absolutely loved that work. But one day I decided that I didn't want my boss's job. And so I needed to make sure I was looking for other opportunities. Uh, I went back to New York City, went to grad school. Uh, I, I got an MBA. Um, all the while thinking that maybe running for office was in my future. Um, and while I was in grad school, I discovered I did not want to run for office. <laughs> uh, there's a long tangent that I could go on there, but I, I won't bother you with that. Um, spent a couple years in New York and got an opportunity to work with a really well-respected uh, manufacturer of men's shoes and apparel. And that's what moved me to Milwaukee um, with my wife who uh, I have been with for 24 years. So we started when we were extremely young and she's endured all of the moves and all of the changes huh. and just an amazing partner. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's how I got to here. Yeah. Um, you know, if anyone was trying to make, if anyone was gonna take my professional background and turn it into advice, um, the only thing that would be reasonable to offer is um, follow your gut, um, work with people who you trust and believe, and do work that you can be proud of. Because that's the only way to tie all of the divergent things I've done in my career. Yeah, I, I was thinking, though, when you were talking about how in Maine that was your first chance to kind of learn about having an impact at scale and how small things can have uh, a, a greater impact down the road. Um, it made me think a little bit about some of the work you started doing in Milwaukee after you got here. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about the, I know you started a few things, you were involved in a lot of different ways, would love to hear kind of before your current role, what what were you doing and, and why was that so important to you? So I was uh, working for an organization called the Greater Milwaukee Committee that had an economic development strategy called Scale Up Milwaukee. And Scale Up exists to support small, ambitious, growing businesses. The, the motivating philosophy for Scale Up was it was efficient and effective to help small businesses grow uh, because they would create jobs, they would attract an investment, they would uh, impact families, including the owners, the families of the employees, and 
the communities in which they operated in really meaningful ways. And so as executive director there, um, I was both you know, running the initiative, helping to secure resources and so on, but I was also working very closely with the businesses who participated in our programs. And I, I'll be honest with you, I got paid to do that and it was a blast. Um, I, I've had the great fortune of meeting and working closely with quite literally hundreds of business owners, primarily in southeastern Wisconsin, who do everything from uh, the manufacturing of food products, from just lots of different food products, uh, to uh, countertops and service businesses, from florists to restaurants, um, just so many different kinds of businesses. And, and what we did was work closely with the owners to make sure that they were ambitious, make sure that they were surrounded by the supports that they needed to achieve their ambitious growth plans, um, and make sure they understood that the impact of what they were doing was bigger than their top and or bottom line. Um, we wanted to do the work of telling the story of what happens when uh, businesses grow, what happens when someone who had been looking for a job for months, if not years, is finally hired by this small business. And they're now able to support their family and, and support their young people and their kids and so on. That was just incredible work. Um, we wanted to make sure that the corporations in the community understood the value of the businesses in their backyard as potential suppliers, as customers, um, as the providers of talent. Uh, what we were doing was working on an ecosystem theory, and that relied on an understanding that everything that everything in the ecosystem, everything in our our economic market, our system, interacted in ways that we could affect. And so, if we could work with the University of uh, Wisconsin in Milwaukee and meet their young entrepreneurs and say, hey, think huge, think really big. That would change the way they act as employees of small businesses. And that would change the way those owners, those owner entrepreneurs would engage in business with even large corporations. Um, it would, you know, if we could work with the bankers and say, uh, the role of that entrepreneur is not to sustain the business, but is to grow the business. The bankers would engage them differently and a more productive, um, supportive way. And we wanted to make sure everybody was involved. Lawmakers, uh, our, our cultural uh, influencers, whether that was the podcasters or the newspapers. We want to make sure everybody understood they have a role to play in supporting um, our economy. So, and I had, a, again, I had a great time doing it. Um, one of the most exciting things of my life is whenever I'm riding around Milwaukee, Southeast Wisconsin, and increasingly across the state, I see businesses that I'm really familiar with doing amazing things and I'm proud to have participated in their stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really powerful thing. And, and in many ways, your, your current role is kind of a continuation of, of some of those, those things that you've just held as, as deep and important values 
So you're executive director of WIDA, um, which I think probably many people listening, including myself, don't entirely understand what that is or what you do. So now is your time to shamelessly brag on all your things. What is WIDA? What do you do? Talk about it. Let's tell the story. So let's start at the beginning that um, I have a very long title uh, at an organization which has a very long name. So my title is Executive Director and CEO of the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. WIDA, as we call it, and it's important to note that we are WIDA with an H, right? W-H-E-D-A. Was started roughly 50 years ago by the Wisconsin legislature. We were seeded 50 years ago with a reasonable investment to solve the problem of affordable housing. And over the years, we've developed a portfolio of products and responsibilities that include lending to low and moderate income households who would like to purchase a home. And oftentimes it's they're purchasing their first home. And so we make loans to folks who want to buy their homes. And we do this through a wonderful portfolio of banking partners. And so someone like you, Ben, could walk into a bank and say, I'd like to buy a house. And they would say, well, have you ever considered a WIDA loan? And you'd go through a process and you'd qualify and buy a house and you would be set off on a whole new trajectory of economic independence and wealth creation related to owning a home. So that's one extremely important part of our work is that we provide loans to uh, families across the state. The other thing that we do, or one of the other things that we do, is administer state and federal tax credit programs that make the production of multifamily housing uh, attractive to developers. So if you can imagine trying to build an apartment building that would exclusively serve low and moderate income families, it might be difficult to do that in a, quite frankly, in a profitable way because the rents that you would collect, which are uh, restricted by um, HUD or restricted by uh, more local covenants, might not attract what higher income earners, uh, rather the rents that they could pay would, would be lower than what higher income renters would be able to afford. And so as you're trying to make, uh, make everything work out, it's, it might not pay for the cost of building the building. And so what we do is offer uh, credits, tax credits from, that we administer from the federal government and from the state government that allow those development deals to work. Um, that is an important part of our work. It's extremely complex, but it works extremely well. And so last year, for instance, the tax credit awards that we offered, the federal tax credit awards we offered, will generate something like 1,500 units of housing. It's pretty exciting. That's a combination of single, excuse me, one bedroom, two bedroom, even three and sometimes four bedroom apartments. So it might be a place for um, a veteran 
who's recently come back from service, who doesn't have significant income, but who needs a place to live by themselves. Or it very well could be housing for families with kids or multiple generations to live and everyone can have their own bedroom and have the safety, the security, uh, and the affordability of housing that they so deserve. And we desperately believe that safe, stable housing is at the foundation for economic prosperity. And if you allow me, I'm going to go off on a tangent and just remind folks that uh, housing is healthcare, housing is uh, wellness, housing is economic development, housing is one of the most important ways for us to assure and secure our ability to offer um, a means of stability, a means of success for people across the state. And so, again, one of the ways we do that is through providing tax credits to developers. We also provide commercial lending to those developers if they so des desire it. Um, so to them, we are very much like a bank. Um, they take out significant loans to build beautiful apartment buildings for families and communities across the state. The final thing that we do is the economic development portion of our work, where we have, um, and this will likely surprise you, Ben, where we have for 50 years, or 49 years, been working largely in, in the agricultural space with products specifically focused on farmers and agribusiness, and whether it's uh, guarantees on loans or other financial products, we are heavily invested in what happens in our rural communities. So I often think of us as having those four types of acti activity, if I oversimplify, the single family loan product where we help folks borrow money to buy a home. Uh, and I should offer, we also help folks borrow money to improve their homes. We have their, that commercial lending place where developers borrow money to build housing units for people to rent. Uh, we offer the state and federal tax credits. And then finally, we have economic development, financial products, participating loans, loan guarantees, and a few other things. We also have a foundation. It's in fact called the WIDA Foundation, which since 1985 has deployed grants to organizations serving the homeless organizations serving folks that need transitional housing uh, with the kind of financial support they need to improve, increase, or expand their offers. And those grants might go to things like building a new wheelchair ramp, ramp uh, updating or upgrading HVAC, or even adding on to the side of a building so that they can house more people. So we in summary, uh, have a fairly diverse operation that allows us to have something to offer communities across the entire state. And we're only able to do it effectively when we can partner 
with folks in each of these communities uh, to secure these means. So whether that means local banks, uh, local governments, um, some of our sibling agencies, whether it's WEDC or the Department of Health, um, and so on and so forth. We are often accelerators of impact. We don't want to operate alone. We are great collaborators. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know many of those things and, and appreciate you sharing that. Um, it makes me think of the, the old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, I, I think in so many cases, those, those private and public partnerships allow us to make some serious impact because uh, there's, there's ways in which both of those sides bring things the other maybe in our current environment or for whatever reason can't or, or isn't able to. I think that's so true. And I'll, I'll also offer, and I, I say this uh, with the awareness that I'm not a Midwesterner and I'm not necessarily constrained by the Midwestern modesty that so many of my peers and in fact the culture of WIDA is. There are places where WIDA is impactful and that WIDA has been working for years and years that we haven't made a lot of noise about. And so very often, WIDA is within arm's reach. WIDA's impact, WIDA's work is within arm's reach and you just, you just might not know it. Uh, one of the things I've loved since my arrival is to challenge all of us to tell WIDA stories using names. And what I mean by that is uh, tell, tell us a story of something that WIDA was able to contribute to, how WIDA is able to empower a family to purchase a home, how we were able to provide the kind of safe, safe stable housing that we think everyone deserves. Um, and tell us names of folks who benefited. Tell us the names of the partners whose operations were expanded and improved because of our partnership. And that's not defying our modest and humble culture. It's just making sure that we make it about impact at the human scale, not just uh, the structural, systemic, and almost uh, mechanical work that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious, can you share... Um... How many how many people does WIDA touch in a year? So I, I know you have these different buckets. Um, tell me a little bit about like the scale of that. Like how many families are you helping each year buy their first home? Talk a little bit about that. I think that would mean a lot to folks to understand. Thank you so much for asking that question. WIDA has um, oh yeah I'm I'm actually I'm I'm almost too excited to answer this question so thank you so much for asking about it because it is absolutely in keeping with uh, our being people centric in fact uh, it's worth mentioning we're in the midst of a strategic planning process where we've developed a new set of priorities and one of our priorities is to make sure that we're putting people first so to talk about what WIDA does historically has meant to describe our operation in units to describe our operation in dollars. But what's way more exciting to me, at least, is when we talk about the work we do in people. So for instance, uh, last year, we helped around 2,300 families buy a home across the state. It's a little difficult to talk about that in true people numbers because those families, at times, were 
one-person families, and other times it could have been five or six people, person families. But but let's let's call it two. That means that there's almost five thousand people who bought homes who are now living in a place that uh, allows them to paint whatever color they want on the walls. It allows them to commit uh, a bedroom to a gaming studio if that's what they desire, or 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 leave their laundry on the floor because this is their place now. I love thinking about that. If you think about the work that we do on the tax credit, on the multi, what we call the multifamily side, we're really getting into the tens of thousands of people because uh, not only should we count the folks who will move into the developments that we award each year, but we're going to talk about the the families and the individuals living in um, the units that we have credited in the past, that we have financed in the past, that we are overseeing, uh, that we are administering voucher programs for. So if we add up all of those, we're really talking about tens of thousands of folks. So since our creation, just to give you a sense of a longitudinal scale, we're, we're bumping up on 150,000 folks who have bought homes using LIDA loans. And again, we're talking about hundreds of families, hundreds of thousands of uh, people and families who live in buildings credited by, financed by, um, and touched by WIDA's work. Like I said before, we are often arm's length, even if you don't know. WIDA is statutorily mandated to address people who are low and moderate income. And I think we all think that when we build tax credit developments, or what we call LIHTC developments, low income housing tax credit, we are thinking about um, the poorest of the poor. And in reality, because of the way things are working, oftentimes those tax credit developments are the folks that we would recognize as our neighbors from our childhoods or our neighbors in our jobs. These are folks who make moderate incomes. Um, sometimes our housing is occupied by folks that make 80 and and less percent of the local area income. It's teachers, it's firefighters, uh, it can be folks who work in local government. It can be so many different kinds of folks. Yeah. And I think the point you made about the multifamily units is particularly impactful. I mean, if anyone reads the news these days, you keep reading about high rents and um, the the fact that in the midst of inflation right now, like housing is challenging. Um, I remember my wife and I used to live right off Brady Street. And I think in the span of like two years, there were maybe five or six new apartment buildings within walking distance of us, but they were all not not necessarily ones that would have been sponsored by WIDA. They were all getting that high income, a high earner folks. And uh, I, I think understanding if there are systems in place um, working towards making sure housing is affordable, not just in Milwaukee, like you said, throughout the state, is is something that is, is helpful to understand. You know, I, I think you're touching on something really important that uh, there's a lot of money to be made in housing. And there are, uh, there's lots of folks who can uh, afford what we would call market rent. But if we're short-sighted and we're not thinking about uh, what the entire economic picture looks like, 
we're really going to hurt ourselves. So if we're not making sure that there's housing for folks who will fill our factories, uh, there's housing for folks who will teach in our schools and work in the hospitals, we're actually going to make all of our communities much lesser place to live. And I just want to add, uh, Governor Evers, my boss, has has the right idea, right? So he believes in taking care of our kids. Uh, he believes in thinking longitudinally, thinking about making sure that we're structuring such in such a way that we're protecting our future. Well, let me ask you a little logistical question because I, I always like to hear about this. Can you talk about, um, I know you talked about the that WIDA was seeded or when it was originally founded by the state legislature. Where where does your money come from now? Are you like in the state budget? Is that something that gets voted on? Talk about the funding piece. Uh, I think that's always a good thing for us to understand. The short answer is when the governor generates the biannual budget, it does not include uh, simple dollars thrown into support WIDA's operation. We use... Uh, we use bonds and we use our tax credits to generate revenue that support our operation and that go back on our balance sheet that we can redeploy in the form of loans. Well, uh, really appreciate all that you've shared so far, Elmer. One thing I always like to end on, the last question I'd like to ask you is is an action step. So our podcast is always focused on action steps for our listeners. How can people engage in the community? what have you, what, what would you say? What's your action step, or, or it can be two, um, for our listeners that, that you would encourage them to do? One of the things that we can do is avoid nimbyism. Have you heard the word nimby? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. So nimby means not in my backyard. As we try to solve the problem of where people can live, and where people can afford to live, one of the easy answers is build more small houses. Because small should be less expensive. But often it's the case that in communities across the country and certainly communities across Wisconsin, our zoning doesn't allow for it. And where our zoning might allow for it, and and I'm going to get really specific just in case folks aren't zoning nerds. Uh, In many places, for instance, across Milwaukee, there uh, there are houses with very large lots particularly impressive when they're in the middle of the city. But our zoning doesn't allow for the construction of another house on that lot because we do not want to become too dense, is is usually the framing language. And the reality is density uh, works to everyone's advantage, um, environmental, um, social, infrastructural, and so on. And the fight against density is often uh, is often nimbyism, which is people not wanting things in their literal backyard. And don't be a nimby. Just don't do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna distill everything I want from folks into one word, uh, which is, and I'll make sure it's a verb. It's participate. Yeah. It's participate in the conversation, whether it's. Uh, a community or a neighborhood coming together to develop what their future is. It's participating when local zoning boards or uh, city councils or mayors ask for input. It's participate in our governing system so that 
your perspective is truly represented. And it's participate with the mindset and with the understanding that when we all do better, we all do better. That what is what is truly best for the individual is what's best, and I want to say this very clearly, what's best for the collective will be best for the individual. What is uh, best thought of individually is not always going to serve the collective. And so I'm going to invite folks to recognize that serving the collective, thinking about themselves as part of a community, will work to the advantage of the community and the individual. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bridge the City. Stay tuned for a few more episodes coming up as we dive deeper into housing affordability and the challenges many people face in Milwaukee right now. If you enjoy the podcast and are able to financially support us so we can continue volunteering to make that happen, please do at patreon.com slash bridge the city. For those of you who have faithfully supported the podcast, know that we are incredibly grateful. Last of all, don't forget to reach out and share how you are helping bridge the city.